So Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39 is our passage this morning. And one of the reasons why we come back to the Bible week after week and day after day is that the Bible helps us to see the world as it really is. When we read the Bible, we are like the servant of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6. One morning, the servant of Elisha woke up and he looked out the window and he saw surrounding the city a mighty army of enemies who had come to besiege the city. And Elisha told his servant not to be afraid. And he prayed to the Lord and asked the Lord to open the eyes of his servant. And then 2 Kings chapter 6 verse 17 says, So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. So the Bible shows us things that we cannot see with our eyes so that we will not fear the enemies who surround us. The servant of Elisha could only see the army of Israel's enemies that were at the gates of the city. But when God opened his eyes, he saw the angelic army that had been invisible to him that were arrayed in support of Elisha. And as the Bible says, He who is with us is greater than he who is against us. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And so there is no reason to fear. And everywhere we look and everything we listen to, we hear deceptions and lies in the worst case. In the best case, we only get part of the truth, part of the story. But the Bible pulls back the veil and tells us not just how things look, but how things really are. So, for example, in Romans chapter 8, God pulls back the veil here for us in this chapter to help us see how things really are. We may feel like our prayers are weak. But in verse 26 and 27, we are reminded that even though we are weak and don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. It may seem like everyone and everything is against us, but we're reminded in this chapter that God is working all things for our good. We may feel like our faith is fragile and our future is uncertain, but God tells us in Romans 8 that He has set His love on us, He has foreknown us, He has predestined us, and He will without doubt glorify us. We may fear that our enemies are too great, but Romans 8 reminds us that God Himself is for us. We may fear that, we, that God will tire of providing for us, But Romans 8.32 reminds us that God has already given us the most costly gift in sending His Son for us, and He will not begrudge to give us anything else that is good for us. We may fear that our sins that Satan loves to remind us of will ultimately disqualify us in the end, but Romans 8 reminds us that it is God who knows all about us, who has declared us righteous and forgiven in Christ. 
We may wonder whether we will really be welcomed into God's presence in the end, but these verses remind us that it is Jesus Himself who will judge the living and the dead, who died for our sin, who rose for our salvation, who even now is interceding for us, and it tells us all these things so that we will have no doubt that He will welcome us into His presence on the last day. But what about all the hardship that we face right now? What about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing persecution in places all around the world, being uh, hounded for their faith, sometimes imprisoned or even put to death for their faith? What about the opposition and hardship that we face in many ways? What about the reality of death? What about all the trials and challenges and tribulations of living in this fallen, broken world that is hostile to God and His people? How do we think about that? How do we deal with that? That's what causes Paul to raise this last climactic question in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, when he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, what would cause Paul to even raise a question like that? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? For one thing, he has just reminded us in verse 34 of some of the most powerful ways that Christ's love has been shown to us. Remember verse 34, he reminded us that Jesus, who is the judge, is also the one who sacrificed himself for us, who bore the weight of our sin on the cross in our place so that we might be forgiven and declared righteous. That's where he reminds us that Jesus was raised from the dead and is now seated at God's right hand. That's where he reminds us that Jesus' love for us was not as great as that one moment was on the cross. His love for us was not limited to that moment. He is even now praying for us, interceding for us, continuing to demonstrate His love and care and concern for us. Right, so if there's anybody here who's not a Christian or, or has not yet really embraced Jesus and the gospel, this is the heart of it. That though we are sinners, Jesus laid down His life for us so that if we turn from our sin and we trust in Him, we receive forgiveness, we receive righteousness, we are welcomed into fellowship with God, we become His children. God has showered us with this love. But, there are things that we experience in this life that can cause us to question whether God really does love us. And maybe we know that they shouldn't cause us to question, but sometimes they do. Notice the things that Paul brings up there in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword... It is not hard to imagine experiencing persecution, experiencing being deprived of food and clothing, or facing death, which is what the sword stands for there, and wondering, why is this happening to me? Has God abandoned me? Does the Lord no longer love me? 
Paul experienced many of these things, if not all of these things, right? He lists some of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and and this is just part of the list. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Five times he was whipped 39 times. Five times he experienced that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, that is the Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Do you think it's possible that occasionally Paul was in the midst of some of that suffering and wondered, am I doing something wrong here? Does God not love me? Why in the world am I experiencing all this hardship? What we see in Paul's letters is usually the confident response to those questions. But don't you think it's possible that it took Paul a little while to get to the positive response in the midst of the hardship that he now gives to us in the letters? In other words, I don't think it's automatic that every time Paul experienced that hardship, he responded right away the way he encourages us to respond in his letters. I imagine sometimes it, it took him a little bit to work through some of those things. And so, when Paul raises this question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? I suspect, though I can't prove it, I suspect that the reason Paul even raises the question is because that question had been raised in his own mind. And he had to search the Scriptures, just like he encourages us to do. And he had to come to these answers that now he gives to us, just like for us, we've experienced all kinds of hardships and we see a friend going through through the same thing and we're able to say, hey, here's a verse that helped me. And I'm not saying five minutes after it happened, I had that verse and I was fine. I'm saying that verse is what got me through it for the long haul. And I'm giving that to you. I think that's what Paul's doing for us here. So he says, essentially, you might wonder if some of the things that you experience and some of the trials that you face, they might cause you to wonder if God has abandoned you, if God doesn't really love you. But I'm telling you, none of these things separate us from the love of Christ. And Paul even shows us that we are not the first ones and Paul is not the first one to raise those questions. Look at verse 36. He cites a passage of Scripture. He says, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That comes from Psalm 44. Now, if you go to Psalm 44, this is from verse 22. If you go to Psalm 44 and look up verse 22, and you sort of skim the psalm, here's what happened to me. I was sort of skimming Psalm 44, trying to figure out what this quote was about and why Paul, why Paul was using it here. So I started skimming the psalm, and I thought, okay, I, I think I know what this psalm is about. This is about the Israelites, they have 
They've sinned against God. They've broken God's covenant. And God has sent them into exile as they deserved. And now they're being mistreated and, and, and persecuted and, and put to death. But they kind of had it coming. God had warned them about that. That's what I thought the psalm was saying. Because verse 11 says, You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Verse 13 and 14 say, You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. And then, of course, you have verse 22 that Paul quotes where it says, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So, okay, I think I know what this psalm is about. But that doesn't really fit with what Paul is saying. Because Paul's not talking about people who are being persecuted and suffering because they've sinned and done wrong and, and they're suffering the consequences of that. He's talking about people who are suffering because they're Christians and they follow Christ and, and they're experiencing all this. So how does that fit? So you've got to read a little more carefully. So I started reading Psalm 44 more carefully and I found out my first impression of the psalm was completely wrong. So here's what the psalm says beginning in verse 17. It says, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So here's what's going on in Psalm 44. In Psalm 44, the people of Israel are experiencing the hardship and suffering that we would expect them to experience if they had broken the covenant and worshipped idols and turned their back on the Lord, except the psalmist says, we haven't done any of that. We're doing what God wants us to do, and yet we are still suffering. We are still being persecuted. We are still being put to death. And so Psalm 44 is raising the same question that Paul is raising here in Romans 8. When we follow Jesus and yet things go badly, does that mean we've done something wrong or that we've been cut off from the love of God in Christ? What's the answer? Well, at the end of Psalm 44, there's at least some, some hope, some confidence that they've not truly been cut off from the love of God. The last line of Psalm 44 says to God, Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So we know that your love is faithful. We know that you are loyal and true and I don't believe that we've been cut off from your love, so come and rescue us for the sake of your steadfast love. That's how the psalmist resolved it in the end. But we have an even better and clearer resolution than that. Notice what Paul says in verse 37. This is his answer. Shall we? What shall, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? So all these things, all, all this kind of persecution, suffering, death, we're following Jesus, we're doing the right thing, and it, everything is still terrible. Is any of that going to separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, he says, No, 
In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Now, how are we more than conquerors if we're naked and hungry and persecuted and being put to death? How can you be more than a conqueror? All right, well, before we answer that question, let me, let me back up and say, say one more thing about Psalm 44. If you find yourself in this kind of situation where you are suffering and you are experiencing and, and you're, these questions are rising in your mind, it's okay to ask God these kinds of questions. It's okay to pray Psalm 44 and say, God, I thought I was doing what you wanted me to do. What is going on? Why, why am I being treated this way? Why is this happening? Would you come and rescue me? That's okay. The, the Bible does that. The Bible models that for us. But if you ask the question, right, you need to be ready to receive the answer, too. Right? You can't just wallow in the question and, and, and ignore the answer. If you ask the question, you've got to be ready for the answer. So what's the answer? How are we more than conquerors if we're being put to death? How are we more than conquerors if we're being persecuted? How are we more than conquerors if we're experiencing famine and nakedness and danger? Well, he says, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That's Jesus. And the way that we conquer and the ultimate answer to Paul's question is the death and resurrection of of Jesus. Alright, so think about this. Think about this. Jesus came into the world. Right? He's the eternal Son of God. He came into the world, born as a man, took on flesh, and He willingly endured suffering, mockery, persecution, even to the point of death. God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son. I love Him. But when He went to the cross, what happened to Him? From the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people who were mocking him, who were standing around the cross, some of them said, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Their point was, doesn't look like God loves you right now. Doesn't look like God wants anything to do with you right now looks to us like you are under the curse of God. Jesus himself is crying out, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus, when he died in our place for our sin, he experienced the forsakenness we deserve, and he was mocked by those around him as though God did not love him because of the terrible things that he was having to endure. But... What happened three days later? He was raised from the dead. He was vindicated so that all who saw him raised on the third day would know everything he said was true. Everything God said about him is true. Clearly, this is God's beloved son, whom he has not abandoned to the grave, whom he has not let see corruption, but whom he has raised victorious over death and hell and the grave. He is the beloved son. He is the Messiah. He is loved by God. And what Paul has been telling us all through this letter is that what is true about Christ becomes true of us 
when we trust Him. Remember back in Romans chapter 6 where he said, look, if you, you've been baptized into Christ, right? You were baptized in the name of Christ when you received Him, you trusted in Him. What, what was that all about? When you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into His death and into His resurrection. So your old self has died and you've been raised to a new life. And when Jesus comes back, you're going to be raised from the dead. He said in Romans chapter 8 that if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. And that by the Spirit who dwells in you, God is going to raise you up on the last day. So Jesus experienced hardship, persecution, suffering, and death in a unique way. Right? But also in a way that he told us to expect as his followers. He told his disciples, if they hated you, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And yet, he also said in John 16, 33, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How do you think those words sounded when they remembered them after his resurrection? I have overcome the world. You're going to face tribulation. People are going to hate you, persecute you. Things are going to be hard. But I have overcome the world and you belong to me. So you don't have any reason to fear. Because my death means your death and my resurrection means your resurrection. In other words, what Paul is doing here for us is he is reminding us in a way, I mean, I'm not saying this is in his mind, but he's doing for us the same kind of things, thing that God did for Elisha's servant. Because looks can be deceiving. But God is pulling back the veil and saying, look, it might look like my people have been abandoned and forsaken. It might look like the people who trust Jesus are some of the worst treated people in the world and in some countries you know they're being put in jail they're being their houses are being raided their churches are being disrupted it might look like i don't care about them it might look like they're just out there on their own suffering but it also looked like i had abandoned jesus looked like he had been forsaken looked like he wasn't loved but he was and he is and i raised him from the from the dead to show the world that he was mine and I will do the same thing for you when he comes back and that's why you will be more than a conqueror even if you experience death at the hands of an enemy because death will not have the last word for you. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that one day we're going to sing and say, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? And we're not going to rejoice because we have somehow overcome death. But as he says a couple verses later, he says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through His death and resurrection that we become more than conquerors as well. So, Here's the point in all that. In the midst of our suffering, the cross and the empty tomb are our compass. When we are suffering, we need to remember Jesus suffered. When it feels like we're not loved, when it looks like we're abandoned, when it looks like God has just you know, let our life or our world careen out of control as though he doesn't care anymore, we have to remember the servant of Elisha. 
There are real, true things that God is up to that we cannot see. And sometimes He has a plan and a purpose and a reason for letting us endure hard, terrible things. But He never allows those hard, terrible things to be the last word for any of His children. He didn't allow death to have the last word for His Son. And He will not let suffering and death have the last word for us. That's why Paul ends this way, verse 38 and 39. He says, For I am sure, I'm confident, I'm persuaded, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. In other words, if I've left anything out off of this comprehensive list, if there's anything else you can think of that I didn't mention, stick that right in here at the end. Anything else in all creation. I'm talking demonic powers, angelic powers, worldly powers, things as universal as life and death, things right now, things to come in the future that you haven't even thought about yet. I don't care what it is. I'm persuaded that none of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's another way Jesus put it in John 10. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Meaning, you are just as secure in the love of God as you are in the hand of God. Just as no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, so no one and nothing can separate you from the Father's love. Nothing will ever separate you from His love. Not now, not ever. You are secure. You are loved. And therefore, you have nothing to fear. Let's pray.